Steve, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love hearing stories from you. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Some of our very best have come from our listeners. And we love to tell stories about great acts of charity and generosity and from people of every walk of life, from every walk of life. And now you're about to hear one of those stories. The holidays are supposed to be a time of love and cheer. But as we all know, things don't always happen the way they should. Especially not for the 14,000 children in Michigan placed in foster care. We start in June. We finalize the whole deal the first full weekend in December. That's Mike Papilla. And for his day job, he's the global logistics manager for Guardian Industries, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. And his night job, well, to about half the state of Michigan's foster care population, he's a Santa of sorts, spending about seven months to make sure that the foster kids across Michigan would have a less lonely Christmas. 6,774 children or 20,322 gifts, personalized gifts were delivered to children in Michigan. We've been doing this for 47 years. This project, Operation Good Cheer, started in 1971. And about 30 years ago, while Mike was working for GM, he decided to give Operation Good Cheer a hand when it consisted of only one truck that delivered to only a few foster homes. What perked my, like I say, what perked my interest, I never thought there was that many needy children in Michigan. And I'm surprised at the time, it wasn't that many children, at least at the time 30 years ago, I didn't think. Okay, and as I kept getting more involved each year, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm going, I can't, I couldn't imagine the problem in Michigan being that big, that there, that we had that many children, foster care children, needy children. Then I started digging into it and I understood some of the things as a child that I, that I was raised on, you know, the holidays and things like that, they were missing and, and I thought it was just a good cause. And now with the help of Mike's logistics expertise, they serve roughly half of the state's foster care population, a feat that not even Santa could do without the help of his elves. I bet you we have 2,000 volunteers. The majority of volunteers come out because they want to come out to help somebody. There's, there's a need. There's children in Michigan that, that are foster home children or living not in, a, not in a real home, a home that I consider a real home, not with parents that I consider parents because they don't have parents. And they have a need to bring them a little bit of joy during Christmas. So there's people out here to do it because they want to do it. They want to help them. Of the volunteers that I see, and I see them over and over, year after year, they come back. Um, we get volunteers that come up from Indiana. Um, I get a couple of volunteers that come over from Illinois. They've been doing this years, years and years back when they lived here, and they continue to come back. I get friends and family that show up year after year saying, you know, we're here to help children, and it's a need that has to be filled, and, and we need to share, and we need to give of our time to make this happen. And it, it ranges anywhere from corporate volunteers to Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Civil Air Patrol, 
retirees that come out. When you see the amount of people that volunteer and the, and the size of the group and the age of the group, it's everybody and anybody. <laughs> That's right. Mike just said Civil Air Patrol. Not only does he have truck drivers amongst his ranks, but pilots too. We move the, the gifts either by airplane or by truck to agencies and airports around the state of Michigan. Coordinating 2,000 people, 250 airplanes, and 34 semi-trucks. It, it's pretty chaotic in the uh, I'm a professional logistics person, so I'm trying to make this work on the size that we're at at this point. So it becomes a, it becomes a little chaotic, but we get everybody to work together as a team, uh, the volunteers, and uh, we get the job done. A big job for a worthy cause. Let's bring a little bit of joy to, their, to them. Let's, let's get them out of the mood of being a foster child, letting them know that somebody cares about them. There's people out there in Michigan, there's a lot of caring people in Michigan, a lot of caring companies in Michigan that want to try to make their lives better. As I explained to the group, I said, you're looking at gifts and you're looking at a bag, but every bag with three gifts in it represents a child. Treat it that way. Don't, don't drag it along the ground. Don't rip the papers. It's the way you would want to have Christmas. That's the way you'd want to get a gift from your parents. And we're sort of like just trying to fill a need in the state, and I'm and I'm sure other states in the United States have the same problem. The foster program is a great program, but it, maybe it just can't do everything, and we're helping it out a little bit. While Mike conducts this operation like a Christmas symphony, it's the truck drivers on delivery day who channel all of that Christmas spirit to the children in need. They get to deliver the gifts to the orphanages and see the kids. So... They're experiencing what a lot of us don't get to see every day. Okay, they're seeing the reciprocants. They're seeing the smiles. They're seeing the excitement. And they keep coming back year after year after year. They volunteer to come back on their own time, not getting paid by their trucking companies. They dress up in some way, Santa Claus, hats on. One of them brings um, his best friend along, and she becomes Mrs. Claus. Um, I got a couple of them that put lights on their trucks and put reindeer horns on their trucks and uh, red noses um, they're carried away because they enjoy doing it there's somebody in need and it's the time of the season to give back and share and make someone's life happy and that's that's all we're trying to do is help the children and what a beautiful story that's mike papilla and the organization is operation good cheer go to cfsm.org to help that's cfsm.org to help. 6,700 children who delivered personalized gifts over Christmas, 2,000 volunteers, and a caravan of planes and trucks delivering those presents. Three gifts in a bag, and they represent a child. And my goodness, as Mike said, treat those bags that way. And by the way, these are the acts of generosity that are being performed all over this country all the time. The ultimate media bias isn't a political one, folks. It's for bad news. And we're here to deliver the good news about this country, too. Mike Papilla's story, Operation Good Cheer's story, a Michigan story, an American story, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts and from business to history. And this story, well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart on his sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's the, his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant, he was well-read, he was tenacious, he was a very skillful practicing lawyer, and young still. And then the soldiers were captured and they were, everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to having them executed but they had to be represented in a trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adam said, if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was gonna ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father, most people don't know this, but I think it's so important. The only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever. Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. 
But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of the struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory, its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis. The reason that they taxed America was because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies. But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson. And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely. The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist. The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it's of course a tax. And this leads to opposition. When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envisioned wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body. But they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins. Not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty. Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies. The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman. Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. 
His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside. If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams. They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence. The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You have to remember at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers. And what a story. And when we come back, this story setting up, well, like a showdown, like high noon. And we're putting you where we always put you, right there on the streets, in the context, in the history itself. When we come back, more of John Adams' story more of the story of the Boston Massacre trial and the circumstances that brought us there. John Adams' story here on Our American Story. American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler. Oh, there's no turning back for me. England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. There's no turning back now. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupied this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. 
he creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder who has it worse. Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep the peace. For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline, physical, you know, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash. Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobsterback for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys. So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place. That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories. Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get him! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia, but soon, Rocks are hurled, and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered, and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second-story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot the size of large peas. One of our Liberty Boys. Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green, but the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier 
when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom. There's nothing I can do. Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town. Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary. Mine eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. And this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution. In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid, moonlit evening of March 5, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, an angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roamed through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates and a mob starts to grow. British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the custom house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets. The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot, yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground, causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day. And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story. And we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point 
in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though. When we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler. We will all regret this day. The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is treason! This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape public opinion. Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after the massacre. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would plead his case. As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. 
John Adams was not eager to take the task. But Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial. He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read. John Adams' ace in the hole trials is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr. And what was it he said? He said he fired to defend himself. To defend himself! The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay. But puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, If upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries. Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury... The trial of Captain Preston lasts six days, and that of his troops lasts nine. Not guilty. These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day. Not guilty. Adam's compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs. This session adjourned. It is not only the soldiers Adams defends, but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. 
one of the most gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough. I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them? And the posse is not only keeping up with them, they're starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it, it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it, they get there. And if there's a problem, if there's a over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a oh, country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been. And, and, uh, and, and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there, was, there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers, but there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough. And this story, well, it tells you everything about John Adams, that one moment in your life when you're up against everybody else, when you're alone. And it's you and your principles and how you act upon them. Well, it determines who you are. And it determined who John Adams was, no doubt. Great to hear this story and remind us of the founders of this great country. 
And it always reminds us of Hillsdale College as well. And they do all of our This Day in Histories. And whenever we do a history segment, we always like to plug their great work. Go to hillsdale.edu and listen to their Constitution 101 class. Watch it. Have the whole family watch it, too. It's terrific. And we can't hear the story enough about the founding of our country. John Adams' story, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Massacre Trial, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. One of our favorite recurring segments is the story of a song we've done a bunch, Gimme Shelter, The Rolling Stones, my personal favorite, Jesus Take the Wheel, Another Brick in the Wall, Georgia On My Mind. Let's throw to Greg Hengler for our next installment of the story of a song. Our next story of a song dates back to 1810. The hymn Long Time Traveler or Long Time Traveling has been performed with many variations of instrumentation, arrangement, and melody. But the version from the Wailing Jennies is performed in its most traditional way, as a trio and sung a cappella. The Wailing Jenny's trio consists of three mothers, Ruth Moody, soprano, Nikki Meta, mezzo, and Heather Massey, alto. All three write original songs, but the Wailing Jenny's are also very well known for their covers. These include, to name just a few, 17 covers of traditional hymns, 12 covers of Emmylou Harris, 12 of Tom Petty. Here's one. Among the wildflowers You belong On a boat out at sea Sail away Kill off the hours You belong Somewhere you feel free Dolly Parton Everything's gonna work out just Everything's gonna be alright It's been all wrong The Whalen Jennies were founded in 2002. Here's Heather Massey on the group's first meeting in Philadelphia. So we got together in the handicapped women's bathroom and, and I think we sang Amazing Grace or something. And yeah, I felt like singing with my sisters and, and we all had that feeling, so was sort of made to be. A guitar shop brought the three together for a joint performance. Here's Ruth. He said, you guys are going to become a band for sure. You need a name. Um, And that show did sell out really fast, so we added another show, and then that sold out, and then we started getting uh, requests to come and play shows. So, yeah, we did get a sense um, that something was happening, and um, it was a lot of fun. It was, we were, we were, 
you know, pretty green and, and uh, just really doing it for the love of it. And, and that's, that's the kind of magical feeling you want at the start of something. Longtime Traveler is a deceptively simple tune that relies on the pentatonic scale as well as an odd prosody resulting in a hauntingly beautiful sound that evokes not only remote America in the early 19th century, but also its musical origins in Renaissance and earlier England, Scotland, and Ireland. Longtime Traveler is much in the vein of another story of a song we've done here at Our American Stories. Go Rest High on That Mountain by Vince Gill. Go rest high on that mountain Son, your work on earth is done Longtime Traveler is an expression of one who has passed away and is leaving good friends, but as the song goes... Your fond embrace I now exchange for better friends above. It's also a song of hope for those who are still living and look forward to their eternal reward in heaven. The song is soulful and filled with longing. In fact, the sentiment that is often said most about the Wailing Jenny's cover of this traditional hymn is simply, there's just something about this song. In other words, This hidden treasure is something you can listen to over and over again. Here is Long Time Traveler, all two minutes and ten seconds of it. Ye fleeting charms of earth, farewell your springs of joy are dry. My soul now seeks another home, a brighter I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And what we love about our music segments is, my goodness, listen to the sounds, the harmonies, 
And as so often is the case, and I remember distinctly that Robert Plant piece we did, you can go to ouramericannetwork.org and look at Robert Plant. As you recall, the great drummer had died, John Bonham, and Plant was lost. And he had come to America in the 60s to discover blues. He came back in about the year 2000 and discovered, well, roots music. And he and Alison Krauss recorded some of the most beautiful music ever. Black meets white, country meets gospel. And what you get, well, you just heard some of what we get. Stories of a song. Go to Story of a Song on our website. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. The Whale and Jenny's longtime traveler here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our Tocqueville Lives segment where we hear about the associations that ordinary Americans form each and every day to solve problems in their communities and of course to just plain all enjoy each other. And by the way, Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country to write about this grand experiment called democracy in the 19th century and came away with this book, a great book called Democracy in America. And he wrote extensively about the associations in this country. And I want to read for you a brief excerpt. And again, this is written in the 19th century. Quote, Americans of all ages, all conditions, all minds constantly unite. Not only do they have commercial and industrial associations in which all take part, but they also have a thousand other kinds, religious, moral, grave, futile, very general and very particular, immense and very small. Americans use associations to found seminaries, build inns, raise churches, distribute books, send missionaries. In this manner, they create hospitals, prisons, schools, and so much more. And today's Tocqueville Lives story comes from our own Joey Cortez. Brian Broadway started his own church in Claremont, Florida, outside the walls of a traditional church. Their original church of only about three families met out in the world, in a park where they could serve the needs of the homeless. And beyond their Sunday church service, they served the poor in a parking lot of a Winn-Dixie grocery store. So one of my first encounters was when I went to the the Winn-Dixie and I saw a car parked there and they would park there all day. They would park there earlier and later on that night. And I walked up to the people and I asked them if they need anything. And they had a little girl sit in the back seat. And they told me, no, we, we actually sleep here over the night. And then in the morning, we take my husband to work and then I, I stay here with, with their daughter. And the little daughter's in the back seat of the car and she's trying to get a light to read her book. And I'm just looking at it. that time I've, I've got two daughters. And I'm looking at this cute little girl and I'm asking her questions and her name and she's telling me about her book. And I'm sitting there almost breaking down. Like, this is someone's child, and her concept of home, her concept of a place to be with her family is the backseat of a car. How does she invite a kid over to play when she lives from parking lot to parking lot? How does, how, how does she get her clothes clean? It was the first time that I actually realized that people's children call that home. That a child thinks that the current extent of her life is this backseat of this car. 
the child tonight at 1.30 in the morning with people walking around with will hear noises outside and be frightened because she's in the backseat of a car. There is no air conditioning running. There is no vehicle running. The windows are cracked and someone can reach into it. That she has to live through that. There's a difference when they've been there for a while. It's like the light that's inside of them, the light that drives every child that you see in their eyes and the smile. It's like that light died out. It's like watching the death of hope inside of somebody. You see it, it's different. And when you have a conversation with one of them, it's a life changer. Whether you have kids or not, you can have kids, you, you might know a niece or a nephew, you might, if it's your child or your family, you would respond because you can tell the difference. And if we let that light stay out for too long, they're gonna stay that way. The life to them is gonna be a, gr a group of people passing them by. The life to them is just looking at people to see who else passes me by and has no concern about my existence. I sat there and I spoke to them about a half an hour and then something happened. When I, when I got up to leave and I said goodnight, I walked away. I felt like, I felt like I, I felt like I had a problem breathing. I felt like everything in me was stopped functioning. My body just wasn't functioning. I felt like, I, I can't even explain it. It, 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 felt, it felt like dying. It felt like saying there's something happening and you're doing nothing and you're walking away. And after I walked away from that girl, I, I decided I made a commitment. I said, I'm not walking away again without a plan. We have to come up with a plan. I'm not walking away from these children anymore. So then I, I got this idea and I named our outreach Find, Feed and Restore. And I figured if we can f give them a foundation first, you know, if we find them a job, then where do you find them at? Well, we don't know where they live, where their car is parked, where they're going to be sleeping at. We don't, they don't have a foundation and it's hard to build a life or build anything when you don't have a foundation to start with. So to me, the first foundation is housing. How do we get them housing? How do we give them a foundation they can build from? When I moved to Florida, one of the first jobs I got, even though I had no experience in it, I got a general manager job over an RV company. And I was running their whole lot and running their technicians. And so I began learning about travel trailers. We rented travel trailers. That's what we did. Travel trailers, fifth wheels, motorhomes. So I'd go out at least for an hour and a half a day and I'd sit with the technician. And I'd learn everything about them. I'd learn how they function, how to use them. And that some people lived them, out, lived them out here in the South. There was trailer parks and people lived in them. So then two years later, we're thinking of the outreach. And I'm like, wow, we can use travel trailers and give these people a home. I started researching how do you write grants, how do you get funds, and that's when I found out that uh, grant writers cost two to three thousand dollars to write a grant. So then I had another roadblock. How, how do I do that? I don't have two to three thousand dollars to pay someone to write a grant, and there's no guarantee you win the grant after they write it. What do I do from there? And then, after about a few days, just praying and wondering what can I do? I need funds, but I can't afford to get funds, and I can't get my first trailer. And then God gave me one word. I'll never forget it. I was sitting there at nighttime and he gave me one message. And the word was, learn. And that was it. That's all I had. After days of praying, after days of hoping, I got one word, learn. So at nighttime, when I come home from work, I'd play with my kids. My, my wife goes to bed at 10 or 11. I would get on my computer from 11 o'clock to sometimes 2 in the morning. And I would Google, how do you write a grant? I would YouTube, how to write a grant, grant tips, grant techniques. And I took every free YouTube video and every free Google PDF that they had until I learned it. It took me almost a year and I learned it. First grant I ever won was a Walmart grant. I think it was $500. And you would have thought that I won half a million dollars. I was ecstatic. I was, I was so happy. Um, it was just the biggest thing for me because it's like, wow, this has never happened. 
Um, so we won our first grant and I started winning grants from public supermarkets, from different foundations. Um, and I started winning grants until we got, so we got our first trailer. We had a visitor come to our church. A lady that was only coming for a few weeks visited us and said, listen, I have a family trailer that we use for vacations and I left it in another state, but if you want it, you can have it. And she donated it with us. And we used the grant funds to tow it to get there. Um, and then when I started, I kept writing and then I won a thousand dollar grant. And then I won a $5,000 grant um, from 10,000 to 20,000. It kept climbing and escalating. Um, and from there, we built it up from the one trailer within two years, going from one trailer to eight trailers, and now eight trailers with duplexes. Um, but off of one word, that word was learn. So I'll never forget that. Never paid for a unit. We've all, they've always been donated for us. We just pay to upkeep them and keep them functioning. But Brian does much more than that too. He gives the families that join his program a vision and the tools to live a better life. When you come into our program, you live in the car. You don't have fresh food. You don't have anything. So when you come into a trailer, it's fully it's fully stocked, uh, from steak to sausage, uh, whatever it is you eat. We show them their units. We walk through how to maintain them and keep everything clean. We go over our process. We give you a a life coach to help keep up with you and make sure that you're heading in the right direction. Uh, we do budgeting classes. Uh, we do meal planning. We do every, all the different services that we can do to help you get back on your feet according to the game plan we preset with you. They're allowed to stay there anywhere from six to eight months renting utilities free. And after six to eight months, they should be working and they'll get a bill for $200 a month for their rent and $50 a month for their electric. And they'll start paying those bills using the budgeting classes. They've learned things to budget their money and start paying the bills. After six to eight months, we hope to be able to get them into their own place, to get them into back into self-sufficiency, where they own their own or, they ha- or they're out in their own apartment. Uh, we go over how to promote, get promoted at your job, putting forth your best effort, being on time, just some basic skills training. So that's our, that's our main program goal, get, get people from homeless to hopeful into self-sufficient lifestyles. And our program has proven effective. The foundation first is key, or what they now call housing first, getting them into a safe place to have a foundation and then wrapping all the services around them that they need to become self-sufficient. And we found that to be most effective. Next week, we're going to a closing. A lady bought her own park model trailer and she's closing on it next week. And we're actually going to take pictures. That lady lived about six or seven blocks away from our church. She lived in a blue Chevy Malibu with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And she lived there for four months with those kids. So to see her come from this to that, it's just, it's a life-changing, it's a life-changing event. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Brian Broadway, the pastor of Living Message Church in Claremont, Florida. And by the way, we know this is happening all over the country, beautiful stories like this from churches, civic organizations, send them to us, civic organizations, send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our Tocqueville Lives segment continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Thank you. 
And we return to Our American Stories and to Brian Broadway's story. And I love that he had just mentioned a simple sentence, turning someone from homeless into hopeful. And again, no government help here, just a guy, a church, helping a person that was clearly in need of help. And again, Americans do this all the time, but our media, our press, they just like the train wreck. It's just what they do. And by the way, we like the train wreck too because we buy it. But here on Our American Stories, we don't do the train wreck. Uh, We do these kinds of stories because it represents who we are. Now let's return to Brian Broadway's story. For the past three years, from the trailers from last week to the trailers that's coming in two weeks, I cleaned them uh, with a team of another two or three people. So I've cleaned every single trailer we've had. So one thing with trailers is that trailers can't use regular toilet paper. They can't even use septic-safe toilet paper. They use what's called dissolvable toilet paper. It dissolves in water. You buy it at Walmart, but it's not in the toilet paper section. It's in the, tra- the RV section, the auto section. You know, Walmart has that auto section across. You go to the auto section, and they sell dissolvable toilet paper for RVs. Or you buy it from an RV store. So I, I try to... This is one of the things I tell people. And now, I stock it. When someone, when someone comes to the trailer, I stock it for them. So a lady obviously didn't follow the instructions, and she used regular paper. So I, she says the toilet's backed up. She goes, my kids just use the bathroom. There's poop coming above the top of the toilet. So it's about 11 o'clock at night. And I said, maybe I have to wait till tomorrow. She says, we'll sleep outside in the car. We can't take the, the smell. Um, we'll just we'll sleep outside. And my wife looks at me and she says, Brian, she has two, three kids, one with special needs. You have to go. So I'm like, you're right, I have to go. So I get up and I bring my plunger. I bring my normal stuff. And you can smell it from the outside of the trailer. And I walk into the trailer. They sit outside. They want to sit in the smell. So the family, the wife, the, mom, the lady, her mom, and the three kids sit outside. It's pitch black. It's 1130 at night. I'm in there trying to get this thing unstuck. There's poop all on the top of it. So then I had to go to the store, buy buckets, and I had to take scoop the poop out and put it into a container. So then what I forgot is that you should open up the valves before you start in the bottom of the trailer to get the pressure out. I didn't think because I just wanted to get this thing done with. So I start pushing and putting my tools in there to try to push it through and the thing backsplashes and it shoots. <laughs> it shoots over my chest, over my chin. And, uh, and I I just react. I run outside. I take my shirt off. I run, I'm running around. I'm like, oh my, I'm screaming. I'm running around and I turn around and I realize that there's the three kids sitting down in this bleacher watching me like a madman run around with no shirt on. <laughs> from this poop that just shot out on me. So that that was a lesson on making sure you release the pressure in the tanks by opening up the tubes uh, before uh, before try, before trying to clean them out. So there are certain things that I learned along the way <laughs> when cleaning trailers. But I always say, e- even with that, where you, you come out kind of messy, I still walked away saying, God, I thank you that I have life to serve. I had the arms and the strength to do it. I, one day I won't be able to do it anymore, but I thank you that today I had the ability to do it. No matter how messy it was, you let me do it. But uh, still lessons you learned along the way. <laughs> and Brian, well, he's learned some more serious ones too. When we first started, we didn't know as much as we know now. So we've added on more things. Number one, we didn't realize the, the huge impact of bullying. That most of these kids go to school wearing the same outfit they wore yesterday, they're not clean because they washed up in a gas station where they just washed their face in the sink and they're being bullied. And we did, we were not, when we first started, we didn't even think about that. So we had to introduce 
add into child counseling. So we found child counseling experts in our area and we write grants to be able to afford it, but we, for the kids being bullied, uh, we bring them through child therapists so they can learn to overcome and be comfortable going back to school. Um, so there was, there's a lot of pieces that we add on as we've learned um, what the main things are. So the, the, the counseling for the children is huge. Um, for the teenagers, what are, what are their goals? You got a teenager, let's figure out their goals. What are they doing after school? What are their plans? What are they working towards? So we tr- we do it for everyone to make sure that everyone has a game plan of what they want to achieve and what they're trying to do. A big goal for a big problem. According to Brian, the need in his community is anything but small. Oh my gosh, it's huge. It is astounding. It's astoundingly huge. Every nonprofit calls us for housing. Every church calls us for housings. I mean, we're, we're churches with 2,000, 3,000 members call us with their members for housing. For some context on this, Brian has a congregation of only about 125 members, and the churches with thousands of members call him. The amount of communities that live in the woods is huge, especially in Florida, because there's so many, there's so much woods. You can move mad with a tent and no one's even know you're there. But the demand is huge. The amount of calls we get from the school system is huge. The amount of calls we get from the police department, that's huge. The police department put together their own homeless task force now just to try to keep them safe and try to figure out ways they can stay. Um, so the, the need is huge uh, in our area and throughout most of a lot of Lake County. The need is indeed huge. But for those fortunate enough to get into Brian's program, there's also a huge impact. Earlier this year, it's just been some amazing success stories. We have a couple that just graduated, the one that's on their home, and they still, and they donate to the program monthly, which to me is huge. That's just incredible. One lady, she graduated her program, and she was pretty quick. She actually worked at one of the local hospitals. And so she was a professional and fell in a hard time. She was left and she had three kids to tend to. And we got her into our program. We got her into subsidized childcare. We got everything set up for her. And then about maybe three and a half months to the program, she she just called and she was excited. She says, thank you so much. I just got my own place. I'll be renting a home and um, I'll be done with the trailer by Friday. So we, you know, every time someone's done with a trailer, now some people leave you a nice trailer that's semi-clean. And some people are so excited that they rush out, they grab all their stuff, and they just leave you all the mess. So you get both sides. So not knowing what we get, I go there with two or three people normally. So this time I went with two people. I brought all our cleaning supplies. We have our cleaning baskets set aside. And uh, we came in there, and I opened the door, and it smelled like lemons. I'm like, what is this? And I walked into the trailer. It was flawlessly cleaned. I mean, just unbelievably flawlessly cleaned. I was like, well, guys, we have nothing to do here. And then I went to the refrigerator. I said, well, let's clean the refrigerator out and then we'll, we'll, we'll get the next group and restock for them. And I opened the refrigerator and the refrigerator was full. And I opened the freezer and the freezer was full. Not only was it full, every item, because I did the shopping for her, every item that I bought, she brought the same exact one and put it back, which means she actually wrote down everything I put in the refrigerator when she moved in. And the steak that I brought, she brought it back. I always buy a, a pack of sausage. I always buy an eight-pack of uh, chicken cutlets from the cook. She put an eight-pack back. She brought the same juice back. She put the bottled water back. She put the fruit back. Uh, everything that I bought, she bought to the tea and put it all back in the refrigerator. Uh, this, to the cereal, to the pasta, to the pasta sauces, to the canned beans that I bought. She brought every single item and put it back. 
And I was just so moved by that because no one has ever done that for us before. And what a story and what a voice. And that's Pastor Brian Broadway in Claremont, Florida. And again, Americans do this all over the country. We are a beautiful people. By the way, this story was brought to us by the Mortgage Family Foundation, and they've supported his work. And philanthropy, by the way, is another form of association in this great country. I wanted to close out right now with Brian talking about his favorite verse in the Bible and how it's been his source of inspiration. It's from Galatians. Let's take a listen as we close out here on Our American Stories. Grow not weary in well-doing, for if you grow not weary, you shall reap a reward in the end. But tells me that doing well is to be a part of my everyday life and that the true reward is not what I get back on this earth. True reward is what I get from God when my time is done. My time will end on this earth. One day the, the sun will set on my existence. But the good news is that I did the work. I ran the race. I didn't grow weary in doing well. What I was born for, I completed. And that's why that verse has so much value to me. Do what you were born for and complete it. Do it well. Don't quit when it gets hard. Don't quit when people tell you you can't make it. Don't quit when you get a no. No, you're not getting the money. No, we can't help you. No, you don't get the trailer. No, you're not getting this. Don't quit at the nose. Push through it. Don't grow weary in doing what is well, what is good, what is just, what is kind. The reward that you receive is greater in the end. So that's, that's just my favorite. Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. This is Our American Stories, and now we know you don't want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, so how about some behind-the-scenes stories about the comedy classic? Here's Greg Hengler with a story. Dumb and Dumber wasn't just a huge success, raking in almost a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It also marked the feature debut of writer-directors Peter and Bobby Farrelly, whose wildly funny There's Something About Mary even outgrossed Dumb and Dumber in 1998. But it all began with Harry and Lloyd. Here's Dumb and Dumber producer Charles Wessler. Uh, give or take 90, uh, 1990 or 91, uh... Bennett and Pete Fairley came into my office with holding a script in their hand called Dumb and Dumber. And they said, this is the funniest movie. We really love it. We really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be really great. And would you read it? And I took it home that night and I read it. And I remember I laughed out loud a lot. I like it a lot. Uh-oh. And of course, I called him up and said, look, I, I really, really would like to be involved in this. It's okay! as a producer, 
And they said, great, let's try to do that together. And that set our, our sort of new relationship. And um, it just got turned down and turned down and turned down by every studio and every executive. Even see it come. And we didn't get like, no, you know, thank you very much for submitting your script. Uh, it was a very interesting screenplay. I get calls from executives saying, what a piece of crap. You are one pathetic loser. Why would you send me this? Sh no offense. <laughs> no, none taken. Finally, like two years go by and we're, 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 we're all broke. I'm going to go to the store. Yeah. Okay, just get the bare essentials. This is the last of our dough. In the meantime, while we're failing miserably, I had breakfast with Brad Cravoy about a completely separate issue. And Brad, I asked him what he was doing. He's, he was financing low-budget movies. Here's producers Brad Cravoy and Steven Stabler. I'll never, ever forget reading the screenplay because it was the very first time I read something that made me want to piss in my pants. I was laughing so hard. So Brad brought the script back to the office. We all kind of looked at it. And I remember to this day that it was the funniest script that I ever read and the script that I laughed the most out loud as I was reading. So that night, midnight, I called up Charlie. I said, we got to meet. First thing tomorrow morning, come in. We're doing this movie. Charlie came in, and that's when I met Peter and Bobby Fairley for the first time. It's our big chance, man. <laughs> but during the meeting, Peter and Bobby Fairley started acting out the parts of Harry and Lloyd. And it was really funny. We guaranteed that we would make the movie for $2 million or less. And we started to cast the movie. We went to Steve Martin, he said no. We went to Martin Short, he said no. The film finally started to come together when we started to talk to New Line Cinema. How about a hug? And they, they had a really interesting attitude over there. Uh, Mike DeLuca kind of liked the script. Bob Shea did not like the script, but I guess they liked it enough that if they could get the right cast, they, they said they would make it. And we came up with a list of about 25 actors. And they said, if you can get two of these actors from this list of 25, we'll green light Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, what we discovered was of the 25 odd actors on that list, not one said yes. The new line came back and said, look, we just finished shooting a movie called The Mask, and we love Jim Carrey. But Ace Ventura had not come out yet, so he was pretty much unknown at that point. But if you get Jim Carrey in this movie, we'll make it. We were told that we could close a deal with Jim Carrey for a million dollars any time up until the Friday that Ace Ventura opened. And in our brilliance, we didn't close that deal because he was only a TV star. Monday morning, we called up Jim Carrey's agent, and we said, okay, Let's get our contract on. Hold on, sugar. Daddy's got a sweet tooth tonight. And they said, well, we have a little, little problems on Friday. Now you have to ask yourself one question. I said, okay. Do I feel lucky? What's it going to take? Here's Wessler and Jeff Daniels. New Line, you said, finally, you know, get Jim Carrey. We got Jim Carrey. And then Pete said, Okay, I want Jeff Daniels for the other part. There was just something about it. I remember reading the script with this friend of mine, and I was going to go read for it. And uh, um, I said, is this, is this funny? And I told him about the tongue on the pole scene. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I do, I do this all the time. You know, see, that, that's, that's funny. Snowball in the head. He, he goes, yeah, that's, that's funny. Sitting on a toilet. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Hmm. And they said... No, Jeff Daniels isn't funny. I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not funny. Ah! 
So I had three agents on the phone. Two out of three guys were going, this will ruin your career. This is the end of everything. We cannot recommend more strongly that you do not do this movie. And the guy in New York, Paul Martino, I've been with since for 27 years. And Paul was the only one who said, do the movie. It's funny. Shake it off, man. I'm going to go back. One of the things they said was that Jim is going to walk all over you. I'm going, okay, well, but what about the toilet scene? What about the tongue on the pole scene? What about the snowball in the head? He's not in those scenes. So even if he is that kind of guy, which I can react to, give me a little credit, um, there's the three scenes he's not even in. Put out the fire. And then what Jim said was great. Jim said, this is a buddy-buddy movie, and I really want an actor across from me, somebody that I can react to and that will give and take. He really didn't want another comedian who would just wait for Jim to finish and then try to top him. And we were reading the, uh, the hot tub scene. My hair was long, so I just kind of did this with the hair and, you know, just kind of, you know, did that. And Jim got this smile on his face. This is the life. Pete and Bobby fairly said, we knew before you guys even said a word. You know, Jim and I worked a little bit together, and, and I was, you know, I, I was having trouble getting a handle on it. How far have we gone? Jim kind of knew it and understood it. And According to this map, about an inch and a half. And how much farther we got to go? Eventually, I, I just, you know. Two feet. I just said, okay, what would it be like to have an IQ of nine? We are gonna need a smaller map, but we're never gonna get there. And, you know, and so just to play the reality of that, which is all actor crap, but, you know, instead of trying to be dumb, why don't you just be that stupid? You know, so it just, I just, it literally it was, I would shake my head, you know, and, and like slosh my brain around before takes, just to try to empty out any degree of intelligence that I may have had as a person. You don't comment on it. You aren't trying to be funny. You just are that stupid. Tic Tac, sir. Okay, it's a funny script, but then we're stuck with the Pete Fairley, Bob Fairley. Get the hell out of here. The idea was to just go ahead and shoot it. It's just they always, how far can we go? Where's the line? Let's cross it. The Fairley brothers are like that. They're this constant kind of searching for what's, would it be funnier if we came in having a sword fight? and then hat, boom, boom, ops, and all that stuff. It just kept adding and adding and adding. We try to shoot the first two takes of any given setup, script. And then we'll say, oh, guys, go crazy, do whatever you want. We got it, and we know we got it in the can. Why don't you guys go ahead and do whatever the hell you want? Now, Jim Carrey is such a talented comedian and understands humor so perfectly that he gave up the best part in the screenplay so that Jeff Daniels could play it. Cool. And that's the true spirit of a brilliant comedian. Whatever! All the stuff that Jeff does is really funny. In fact, if you look at the movie, the fact is, I think he gets half the laughs. And Jim gets half the laughs. But it comes from a different place. When they finally got on the set, it was sort of perfect because they got along great. Thank you, my good man. There was no competition for who was going to be funnier, or who was going to be, uh, who was going to get the, the the goofy line? You know, when you're working with Jim, you've got so much to bounce off of and react to, and he's such a gifted comedian. He's so smart. He's so precise. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? 
somebody to react to that and bounce off of that. It was easy. I mean, he made it easy. It was all about whatever happens, keep going, because it could be great. Here's Stabler and actress Victoria Rowell. There's an old saying, a movie's never as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. But you get a feeling, and the feeling on the set as we were making Dumb and Dumber is that we were making something that was going to be really good and that we were going to be really proud of. Well, Dumb and Dumber is an anomaly. I mean, no one quite understands how such juvenile humor attracts the CEO of corporation. And they're not ashamed to tell you that they love Dumb and Dumber. Clint Eastwood came up to me and said that happened to him. That toilet scene, he was dating some girl, he really wanted to impress her, he'd eaten the wrong thing at lunch, he got to her house to pick her up for dinner or to go out or whatever, and he needed to find the bathroom now. And to have somebody like Clint, Clint Stature, tell you that story, and I guess it's nice to know that the movie connected with him as well. I knew we were on to something at least unique. I had no idea that it would be received and enjoyed by so many people so many years down the road um, and that's a great thing you know the last time I looked the Greeks were holding up two masks and comedy should be on an equal level with drama it really should and whether you're sitting on a toilet or you know doing Shakespeare funny is funny and great job as always to Greg Hangler the making of Dumb and Dumber here on Our American Stories 